This planet is threatened with destruction, and we who live in it with death. The heavens reek, the waters below are foul, children die in infancy, and we and the world, which is our home, live on the brink of nuclear annihilation. We are in a crisis of survival. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty, the fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. As a demonstration, its success was mixed, beyond expectations here, far below there. No one now can know exactly how many took part. We do have an idea how many planned participation. Student groups in 2,000 colleges and 10,000 lower schools. Citizen groups in 2,000 communities. By one measurement, Earth Day failed. It did not unite. It did attract that broad cross-section of America its sponsors wanted. Not quite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, predominantly anti-Nixon. Often its protests appeared frivolous its protesters curiously carefree. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. Hey, Lantern Cast family, I'm Chad Bokelman, and welcome to episode number 13 of the Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. What you just heard was an audio clip from the very first Earth Day in 1970. That was a news report done by the famous Walter Cronkite. And there's a reason we'll be covering the uh, very first Earth Day back from 1970. Uh, so all of that will make sense in due time. But first and foremost, we should probably talk about what issue we're talking about. We are covering Green Lantern number 84, also known as Green Lantern Green Arrow number 84, Cover dated uh, June-July of 1971, but was actually released, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for this information. Uh, its actual on-sale date would have been April 27th of 1971. It was uh, edited by the late, great Julie Schwartz, written by the famous Denny O'Neill, penciled by the famous Neil Adams, and inked by the famous Bernie Wrightson. So... Uh, this issue is actually entitled Peril in Plastic. Uh, this episode, by the way, guys, is going to be slightly shorter than usual just because as we get closer and closer and closer to the penultimate, well, not really penultimate because the series won't be over at this point, but as we get closer and closer to the actual big kahuna uh, of issues within um, the Green Lantern Green Arrow series, there won't be as much of a need to go too hard on the social justice, social issues, and the breakdown of the Comics Code Authority. Only because the real gut punch to the Comics Code Authority, the real gut punch to the public, and the topics that are heavy and relevant at the time come more with Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 85 and 86, Snowbirds Don't Fly. 
Um, and once we cover that later on this year, you will kind of know what this entire series, uh, this little spinoff I've been doing has been about. But until that point, let's go ahead, since the next episode of uh, Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow, we'll be covering those issues. Let's give this one its due diligence, not to undercut what comes later, um, or make light of this issue, because it's just as important, because it actually covers a topic that... Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams cover several times during this series. At the very least, Denny O'Neill himself. Um, this is the second time that uh, they've covered the topic of environmentalism in some way, shape, or form. Um, and after Neil Adams leaves the, the series, um, Denny O'Neill covers it several more times maybe not as on the nose but does he does bring it up quite a few times so this is very clearly a topic important to Denny and important to Neil so I feel like we should definitely talk about it and give it its due diligence uh, so diving into it Green Lantern number 84 uh, the cover image shows uh, Hal and Ollie in their uh, superhero garb all bonded down in a public place as images behind them say wouldn't the world be a better place without green lantern and green arrow why don't you kill them and find out and the crowd is all ornery and upset we open on a summer day as hal jordan attempts to quell a few explosions along a dam this is a city that is seemingly placed on the shore, on the coast, but below sea level. And uh, the ocean is held back by a massive dam surrounding the city. But we cut back to three weeks ago, when Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris get together for the first time, as we last saw them last issue. They have, as stated here by Denny, 21 glorious days uh, of, you know, just being together, going, there's a few images of them kissing on the floor and going swimming and horseback riding and all kinds of stuff. As they're sitting together in a garden one night, Carol tells Hal that she is going to be undergoing some surgery, an experimental surgery uh, that may have a radical treatment they can... Uh, this doctor says he can succeed where others have failed and restore Carol's use of her legs. Hal's concerned says he wants to go with her, but she says it's something she needs to do on his on her own, so he agrees. While Carol's out and about the next day attempting to uh, go through with his surgery, Hal tries to find solace uh, in the company of his uh, friend Oliver Queen. So he goes to visit Ollie to get his mind off things. As they're listening to music, a news report breaks on and says that Piper's Dell, which is the name of this town uh, that Carol went to, uh, is being systematically destroyed. The, the, the seawall, the dam around it, is being systematically destroyed. Hal leaps to his feet, jumps out the window as Green Lantern, and heads towards Piper's Dell. He comes upon it pretty quickly and starts to ring up a construct magnet to pull the 
bombs and bomb debris out of the seawall and throw them out into the ocean so it doesn't damage any more the seawall. That is successfully done, but as he realizes, uh, by yanking these bombs out of the seawall, he made certain portions of the seawall vulnerable and weaker. So what he does is he rings up a construct uh, loader, scoops up a bunch of mud, and presses it into the the holes within the seawall and you know solidifies it into some sort of ceramic and he's done but that takes a lot out of him so he sits down to take a rest then the mayor Wilbur Palm he's a doctor in residence and mayor and uh, comes over and introduces himself Hal recognizes Dr. Palm as the man that Carol mentioned the day before uh, the mayor says he wants to show him around and throw a party for Hal. Hal declines, but he says, you know, I'm not going to take no for an answer. He asks Hal what he thinks of their little town, their little metropolis. And Hal says, nice, but the air is a bit sooty. And thinks to himself, I'm putting it mildly, I could swim in the smog. And Dr. Palm says, small price to pay for progress, I say. So... As they go through a tour of this town, you can see that this uh, town is covered in air pollution and all kinds of different uh, smokes and and uh, various chemical smells and so on and so forth. He Hal asks what this quote-unquote wonderful outfit does, this factory. And the mayor says that we make this uh, uh, the Kaluta. It's a combination toy, conversation piece, and personal decoration. He pins one to Hal. And what it does is at random intervals, it gives you a little tickle and puffs some wonderful perfume into your nose. Quite a treat, huh? Um, then what he does is he leads Hal over to a dais to give a speech to the, uh, the, the folks of the township. Uh, as he gets there, he realizes the entire dais uh, is in plastic. The cameras are made of plastic. Um... And the speakers and everything are pumping out non-real, you know, yay, yippee sort of noise and cheers from people who aren't there. And there's no real audience. He says, no need for living folks. This is a modern ceremony, fellow. We've got the TV to pipe all the doings over, all over Piper's Dell. So he gives him a key to the city, which is made of plastic. Um... Green Lantern says he appreciates the honor, but he's got business back on the mainland. He's got to go. The mayor tries to talk him into staying. Hal's like, I, I got to insist. I got to fly off. He flies off into the air, but it's not long before his mind uh, just kind of goes blank. He can't concentrate. He can't put push his will into the ring to force himself to stay up in the air, so he collapses down onto the ground. The mayor comes up behind him with his quote-unquote executive board, to convince him, and then that's when the executive board kicks the crap out of Green Lantern. Um, they hit him with briefcases and umbrellas and trip him up, and he tries to steady himself by grabbing onto a light pole, but that bends because that's made of plastic. Then he gets smacked into a wall. That's made of plastic, so he goes through it pretty easily. Um, he's barely conscious, but has enough will to send his ring off to find Ollie. Um right before the mayor injects him with some uh, with a shot of some sort of sedative. Uh, the ring finds Ollie over in Star City. 
and it plinks off the wall behind him. Ollie thinks he's found something, thinks he heard something, thinks it's a mouse, but right at that point there's a knock on his door, and it's Dinah, uh, and uh, a.k.a. Black Canary. She's been out of town for a little while trying to get her head on straight and think about a few things. She wanted some company. She was lonely and she was bored and she wanted to come see Ollie. So they he offers to take her out for uh, Mexican food and chili. Meanwhile, Hal comes to over in Piper's Dell and is confronted by none other than Black Hand, who reveals himself and says he was recruited uh, by these uh, entrepreneurs and wants to get his revenge on Hal. He explains what's been going on is this entire township has been brainwashed. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, this is not a new principle. There's always been company towing. This is the logical extension. People are like cattle. Give them just enough comfort to satisfy them, and anything that threatens them or they think threatens them, they attack. And with the brainwashing added, they not only attack, they destroy. All over the bird, people are being sold on the idea that you are a crud. I knew you were... Uh, in Hal says, uh, I see you used Carol Ferris to lure me here. You planted the, you planted the bombs. And uh, Black Hand says, Check, I knew you were sweet on her. Got your habits here in my black book. It's a double kick for me. I succeeded in getting you lynched, and it proves the experiment is a winner. Plus, I pay you back. Now I give you the next surprise. Bring in the Ferris Frail while I turn in a couple of keys. Carol is wheeled in, and Black Hand lets them both go. But he lets them go into a town that believes that Green Arrow is the cause for all of its woes. So Hal has to very quickly fight off the entire township who's angry at him and ready to tear him limb from limb. Meanwhile... Dinah is upset with Ollie, yet again, because evidently he dumped his chili all over a guy who was looking at, at uh, Dinah wrong. Uh, as, he, as she walks away, doesn't come inside with him, he goes into his apartment and, all upset, plops down and he sees the ring. He knows that Hal went to Piper's Dell. It must, be, it must have been a trap. But there's no light coming from it. Uh, so it probably needs to be recharged. So he recharges it, goes down to the docks, and he tries to get a speedboat, but he doesn't have enough money to rent one, so he's got down to his last 20 bucks, and 20 bucks evidently will get him a dinghy that he can row over there. So as Ollie climbs into this boat to row towards Piper's Dell, we see Hal and Carol trying to escape the various township individuals. Um, they reach the seawall, and there's nothing beyond it but water, but we're not licked yet, says Hal. But they're at the very edge of the wall, and beyond that is water, and all around them is the township. So he's grabbed, he's picked up Carol and set her on the ground. He grabs her chair and throws it at people. But that's when he hears, Lantern freeze, don't move an inch. And Oliver is there standing on the rowboat, perfectly balanced. Shoots an arrow at Hal. The arrow goes between Hal's middle finger and ring finger. And he catches the ring, his Green Lantern ring, that was uh, on the arrow in his hand. Puts it on. Lights up. 
and takes care of everything. He very quickly goes to split up the township, and he doesn't hurt them, but he just puts them in little uh, construct boxes uh, in groups together to let them calm themselves down. He grabs Hal, uh, he grabs Ollie and uh, Carol, and sets them outside on a bench as he goes inside to deal with Black Hand, who he melts the surrounding building around uh, pieces of the surrounding building around Black Hand, which is also plastic, all over Black Hand to encase him in plastic so he can't go anywhere. Then the next day, uh, Carol says those Piper's Dell people must have been crazy to surrender freedom of decision so easily. Hal says. Not crazy, baby. Different. A bit more greedy than most. A bit less responsible. And Ollie, with a sad look on his face, says, I don't know, pal. You really think they were that different? And behind him, you see a bunch of people shopping for a pre-Xmas July sale. Plastic Christmas trees. And the next issue on sale on or about June 24th. The end. I tried to make that short and sweet, but uh, got a little caught up there in the... Uh, in the recap, but now that the boring part of that is over, hopefully you were able to follow along in a trade paperback that I told you about to buy a long, long time ago. So hopefully you have these issues somewhere uh, there in front of you. Just a little bit of a, some commentary here. One of the things I went over, uh, actually before I get to that, I do like and don't like the kind of romance here between Hal and Carol. Obviously, it's a theme that's been going on for decades between these two characters. Um, I like it because it shows some continuity between these issues within this own series. Uh, so it kind of picks up where we left off with those two. We see that they've had several weeks together, uh, almost a month, and that they're spending some time together and, you know, they're kind of enjoying a bit of a leisurely life. And we also see... On Ollie's side of things, and I didn't really mention it in the recap, the apartment that he's living in is kind of cheap, uh, seedy-looking digs. You know, really really cheap uh, apartments. Uh, but, you know, it's the best Ollie can do. So we see that these characters have been living their lives. So it's really cool to see that bit of, I don't know, sort of boringness. Um taking the time to be mentioned on this page, um, despite the fact that it's going to be in an action-heavy comic. Um, now, the thing I wanted to get to, one of the things that uh, happens is that the mayor specifically says, small price to pay for progress, I say, and there's, and there's our pride and joy, the factory that keeps us in beans and skittles. Piper's Dell's what you call your company town. Everybody's employed by the same wonderful outfit. So, what this means, and the reason I bring this up, is it has to do with environmentalism and Earth Day. Now, how does it have anything to do with Earth Day? So what I did, because this issue was very clearly in 1970, 1971, the early part of 1971... I, and was very clearly about environmentalism, I kind of just Googled that. Lo and behold, the very first Earth Day was held on April 22nd of 1970. And as I tried to narrow things down in uh, reference to that subject matter, uh, I tried to put in things like plastic and so on and so forth. 
I just kept coming across Earth Day. I didn't find any specific articles about uh, heavy plastic usage or protesting plastic usage in 1970 or 1971, uh, anything like that. Anything with enough um, multiple sources that I could look into. I did, however, keep coming across Earth Day again and again and again. So I looked into it. Over on YouTube, uh, there is a series of videos, up to, I believe, 13 videos, chronicling and rebroadcasting, quote-unquote, the CBS News report on the first Earth Day from 1970, as reported on by Walter Cronkite and the various other reporters in the field at the various places in which these Earth Day demonstrations were taking place. Earth Day wasn't officially a holiday yet. It was just called the Earth Day Demonstrations. So, all over the country, all this stuff is going on. And Walter Cronkite reports on it. And that's where you get a lot of this audio that I, I dropped in at the beginning of the episode. Now, I went to earthday.org, and I also went to Wikipedia to find some information. And one of the things I see here is that in the history of Earth Day, from earthday.org, it talks about, you know, the, the first Earth Day. One of the paragraphs says the following. At the time, Americans were slurping leaded gas through massive V8 sedans. Industry belched out smoke and sludge with little fear of legal consequences or bad press. Air pollution was commonly accepted as the smell of prosperity. Environment was a word that appeared more often in spelling bees than on the evening news. That one sentence really caught my eye. Air pollution was commonly accepted as a smell of prosperity. Howe remarks on the quality of the air in this issue, and the mayor's response is a small price to pay for progress. So, prosperity, progress, all that right there. Now, yeah, it's a loose tie. Um, Earth Day was, at this point, a year ago. However, you have to keep in mind, this is coming out on April 22nd uh, of 1970. That's this, this, this is the first Earth Day, April 22nd of 1970. The actual release date of this comic was April 27th of 1971. So the first anniversary of the first Earth Day. Given that, I have to believe that Denny and Neil were referencing Earth Day in this. Not necessarily something involving maybe some sort of a factory producing plastics, uh, or plastics in general, but... Using plastics in the production of plastics and the predominant, um, I don't want to say invasion, but it's all I can think about, the, the predominant invasion of plastic materials into the marketplace as an entry point, a relatable, relatively relatable entry point into the discussion of environmentalism. It puts off toxic fumes and... It, the quality of air dips down, and so on and so forth. So, the problem is, when I try and talk to you about the social issue of environmentalism, is there's not a lot I can tell you. Um, you know, pollution is bad. I mean, the, the, really, the really only uh, option I have to talk to you about this kind of stuff would be to talk like Tarzan. <laughs> you know, pollution, bad. 
you know, it's good to be responsible, and so on and so forth. Um, I did post a link over on Facebook to the YouTube channel that aired uh, those, uh, or that report by Walter Cronkite from 1970 in full. If you want a full breakdown of, uh, of, of information of the first Earth Day and what happened and, and how it was received and so on and so forth, I highly recommend you check out that broadcast because it's not somebody doing a documentary about what happened using information. It is the actual broadcast from 1970 done and compiled by people who were there. So I highly recommend you check that out. I'll have another audio clip here right before we end, uh, or right before we go into the the uh, Comics Code Authority information uh, here in this episode that is from the closing of Walter Cronkite's broadcast. Uh, and that, again, that, that audio will be from that same, that same uh, original 1970 Earth Day report. Now, from EarthDay.org and from the Wikipedia entry, I can tell you that quite a bit of people, more than you'd think actually, were behind Earth Day. Uh, and I don't mean behind it like a, some, sort of, some sort of nefarious plot. I just mean that quite a bit of people supported it, uh, which probably wouldn't be surprising to you. Uh, it also probably wouldn't be surprising that quite a few of them were young people, and I don't necessarily mean just college kids, but little kids too. Or teachers taking out little kids uh, on nature walks and kind of showing them kind of what the world is like. There's actually a piece of this report where you see a teacher taking children out on kind of like a little hike slash uh, walkabout, and she's talking to them about how when she was a little girl, this pond, this little lake slash pond thing, you know, they could go swimming in all the time, but you can't do that anymore because it's it's polluted and it's not safe to swim in. Um, and you know that's coming from somebody in 1970, guys. So that's uh, really something to take into consideration. Now I feel like I'm rambling. Um, I have learned through the course of doing these episodes that it's probably not good for me to uh, ramble <laughs> because you understand my point. And here I can say, like I said, there's. Nothing I can really tell you to convince you of the severity of an issue such as the importance of something like environmentalism and to treat the earth that you live on and the places that you're from and the places that you go with respect and um, to take steps to reduce air pollution, noise pollution, light pollution, and any sort of pollution that may exist and anything I try and do to try and convince you of its uh of you know the evils of pollution would just sound redundant um so I highly recommend you check out earthday.org but more often I actually recommend that you check out those videos over on YouTube um that that speak to uh the first earth day and how I mean seriously guys how many people participated in this one movement. I mean, Earth Day nowadays, I don't think it's as big as a deal as it used to be, and that's kind of sad, but, you know, that's just facts. People just don't seem to care as much anymore about it. Yeah, sure, we have, our, our focus has shifted from, you know, manufacturing uh, 
plastics and, and noise pollution and light pollution and stuff to things like uh, global warming and so on and so forth and, you know, dumping into the oceans and, and things like that. But I feel like if you were to go watch those videos, the sheer amount of people participating is quite staggering, even by today's standard. So I would highly recommend you go check those out. Now back to the issue itself, a couple of things to point out with regards to environmentalism is one of the first cues you get is how ripping those bombs out and causing the uh, seawall to become unstable. Because what he says here in his, in his own mind, his solution, he says, I could use a couple of tons of steel or concrete lacking proper materials I'll have to improvise. The first dams were fashioned of mud, and that'll serve me. My favorite lady, Mama Earth, ought to do the job. This is what he thinks to himself. That is dialogue written, internal dialogue, written by Denny O'Neill. He says, my favorite lady, Mama Earth. If that didn't clue you in that you're going to be involved in some sort of environmentalism story, then uh, the very next few things, when you see panels full of smoke and air pollution and smog in the this little rural, rural township, um, definitely drives that point home. Um, another thing to throw in there is all of the plastic. Uh, plastic was just the material of the time. It was Highly prevalent. Why do you think that, you know, Tupperware parties and crap were a thing when people were, I mean, it, it, plastic was everywhere. Uh, plastic Christmas trees. And I'm, seriously, it's it's not a joke at the end when Ollie's like, oh, yeah, I don't think they really learned their lesson or anything when people are buying uh, plastic Christmas trees and crap. So the plastic thing is all throughout, and I couldn't find a, a good beat on that. But I think it really serves to drive home the point not only of environmentalism, in the actual production of the plastics, but also of industry and government. Because this guy, who's this doctor, slash mayor, is behind this nefarious thing. Uh, and sure, you could say it involves plastic, but it also involves brainwashing the citizenry and kind of keeping them complacent and comfortable with the way things are, which is a huge theme in the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series. So it's kind of hard not to read this and wonder, okay, am I reading an environmentalism story with just so happens to have, you know, some government boogeyman, you know, because the liberal, you know, agenda that Denny O'Neill is trying to push here says, you know, whatever it may be. Or am I reading about a government corruption slash the teaming up of government and business and the evils of that wrapped in an environmentalism story. It's hard to tell, though, because it's kind of 50-50. It really is. There's, there's no one part of this that is actually more prevalent than the other between the teaming up of, of business and government big business and government, as and environmentalism. So it's really hard to narrow it down. I lean more towards the idea that it's about kind of brainwashing the masses. However, 
we kind of already covered that in the prior issue with the quote-unquote Nixon Agnew um, sort of avatars that they used uh, in that prior issue. So it makes me think that this issue is a transition point. If you notice, this issue, as I said, cover dated June, July of 1971, but actually released on uh, April 27th of uh of 1971 it was actually released in april at the very bottom of this issue it says next issue on sale on or about june 24th it's a couple months away so it makes me wonder you know given the production schedules for comic books at the time i wonder if they knew what was coming i mean they had to right it's the very next issue green lantern green arrow number 85 Snowboards don't fly with Speedy shooting up heroin on the cover. They had to have known something was coming. At the very least, they needed time to figure out if they could do it or not. So this issue is a transition issue. It picks up on some of the threads left over from the prior issue with regards to Hal and Carol's relationship and as with issues to like the actual social issues kind of still sort of tightening the screw of, you know, government corruption and so on and so forth, but also wrapping it in this thing that Denny and Neil hold near and dear to them, which is environmentalism and the protection of our environment, our resources, and everything we have on this planet. So it's not a hard leap for them to create this issue as you know what actually let me rephrase this so nowadays when we get transition comics where it's just the writer needs time to prepare for the next issue uh, or you know the next story arc and we just need kind of a cool down episode, uh, issue those issues are largely wasted um, they're there's no real consequence of anything happening in there. There's no there's no real story. It's not those issues should largely really be one shots, actually. Uh, and that's what I've always thought. You know, if you're going to do a transition issue, and I do think we should have transition issues from time to time. You know, gives we just had a six issue story arc. We should have you know a one shot issue or, or, or a two story a two issue story arc. Uh, really short, that just kind of a one-and-done type of thing. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Um, and the the ones that aren't treated like that are usually wastes of paper, just to put it bluntly. This issue is odd in that it's a transition, transition issue, but it manages to make points that all of the issues prior to it were able to make in their individual issues. Now, granted, the subject of environmentalism has been tackled before. Uh, we're referring to that barge that caught on fire, that Hal got knocked out, and Ganthet had to choose, or not Ganthet, Old Timer had to choose between saving Hal or the barge, and you know, so on and so forth. That was an environmentalism sort of issue. The government issue, the most recent one. With the Spiro Agnew and uh, the Richard Nixon uh, avatars. Um, so these topics have had their day. 
But somehow they manage to combine these two issues into one thing, split it 50-50, revitalize and renew, not revitalize and renew, but bring back Black Hand as a villain, and kind of keep it action-y, a little bit of a shout-out to the Silver Age. Uh, technically, if you want to say we're still in the Silver Age uh, at the publication of this, you could say that. Um, I'm of the school of thought that once... Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76 comes out, the first issue of the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams team-up, the Silver Age is officially over, but that's just me. Um, but it's interesting to me that this transition issue was able to happen in such a way that it wasn't wasted. It's not a one-shot, uh, because it, you know, it picks up where some themes have left off, it's kind of carrying forward uh, this ideas, uh, the ideas that have come before it from other issues, as well as plots from other issues. So it's definitely continuing this story. It's more like a, an epilogue than a transition issue, but it's not a wasted one. And that's really interesting to me that they were able to do that, especially considering what we get next, which is Snowbirds Don't Fly. So I just I thought that was interesting. I thought we should talk about that. I thought I should bring that up. Now, I've been rambling repeating myself a couple of times. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the, that um, wrap-up from Walter Cronkite's original broadcast about the first Earth Day. Uh, you'll hear a bit of um, stuff that may prompt you to go find that original content and listen to listen to that or watch that report. And I again, I highly encourage that you do. So definitely take a look at that. So uh, I'll let uh, you listen to that Walter Cronkite audio, and I will be back with some of the information about the Comics Code Authority and uh, kind of the rules and regulations that uh, this uh, this thing broke on us. So I will talk to you guys in just a minute. Those who ignored Earth Day, well, that's one thing. Those who ignore the crisis of our planet, that's quite another. The indifferent have missed the point that to clean up the air and earth and water in the few years science says is left to us means personal involvement and may mean personal sacrifice, the likes of which Americans have never been asked to make in time of peace. The sense of today's teaching was that America must undertake a revolution in its way of life. Affluent America will, we were told, almost certainly have to scale down its standards of living, give up having as many cars, as many children, as many cans, as many conveniences, as much conspicuous consumption. Someday, we heard today, the world will be a better place if it listens and acts. But in the meantime, perhaps for a generation or more, it will be frighteningly costly to each of us to clean up the mess each of us has made. But the cost of not doing so is more frightening. That's what today's message really means. And those who marched today, and those who slept, and those who scorned are in this thing together. What is at stake and what is in question? is survival okay we are back so as with all these issues i like to try to point out the effect that the issue had uh socially which we've already covered in terms of how it's uh half environmentalism half uh big business teaming up with uh, the government and the kind of corruptions therein uh but the thing I, I also li I'd like to do is talk about the Comics Code Authority, because while this series, as I've mentioned several times before, 
was heavily relevant on social issues. It also really changed the game, comics-wise, because it attacked the comic code, the comics code, in quite a few heavy ways. Now, obviously, the biggest uh, attack on the comics code it came with the next issue, uh, issues eighty-five and eighty-six. As a matter of fact, it's a two-part story: uh, Snowbirds Don't Fly. But um, these little issues leading up from from seventy six up until now uh, do have their own little sort of mini jabs. It's like it's like a jogger or somebody just warming up before they get to the full out sprint. Um, and we're we're getting real damn close to the sprint. Um, but the sprint does not discount the jogging that comes before it. So as I've said before. The Comics Code Authority went into effect and was adopted on October 26th of 1954. The very first revision of the Comics Code Authority came in January 28th of 1971. Now, this comic, as I said earlier, was published in April of 1971, cover dated June-July. It's really freaking close to the new release of the slight revisions done by the Comics Code Authority. However... I'm going to still read some of the stuff from the original 1954 version of the Comics Code that I think this issue bucks up against. And I've only got a couple of things highlighted here, okay? From the original 1954 Comics Code, General Standards Part A, Section 3. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. And, in section 5, uh, criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. I highlighted both of those because of one thing only. This character in this comic, uh, not Black Hand, but the, the mayor, uh, Dr. Palm, is not just a doctor. He is a mayor. He is an elected official. Now, it says government officials and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. A mayor is definitely a government official and an established authority. And it, in section 5 it says, Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. To occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. He occupies a position. Mayor. Public service is always, for the most part, in comics of the time, considered to be public service. It is the highest calling. You're doing your community and your people and you're giving back. You're doing so many good things for those around you in the community in which you live in. You were elected. You're a leader. You should desire to emulate that individual. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I do know it sounds like kind of a stretch. <laughs> so, let's take those same sections from the original 1954 Comics Code Authority and read the revisions that I've highlighted here 
and the January 28, 1971 revisions from General Standards Part A. Now, it's not labeled into sections, so I'll just read the highlighted pieces I have here for you. They have taken these two sections that I've highlighted, which were like a sentence, two sentences each, and basically put them into a paragraph. So they've elaborated a little bit. Crimes shall never be represented. Crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. No comics shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime, with the exception of those crimes that are so far-fetched or pseudoscientific that no would-be lawbreaker could reasonably duplicate. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall not be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. If any of these is depicted committing an illegal act, it must be declared as an exceptional case and that the culprit pay the legal price. If a crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. Criminals shall not be presented in glamorous circumstances unless an unhappy ends results from their ill-gotten gain and creates no desire for emulation. Backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. Okay? The way it's worded in the original 1954 Comics Code shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority, period. Criminals shall not be presented as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation, period. Okay? However, shall not be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority, period, if any of these is depicted committed in the legal act, it must be declared as an exceptional case and that the culprit pay the legal price. Criminals shall not be presented in the glamorous, in glamorous circumstances unless an unhappy ends results from their ill-gotten gain and creates no desire for emulation. The, rigid, the rigidity of the original 1954 Comics Code is crumbling already with the introduction of the 1971 revisions. It is already starting to fall apart. And when we get to the next issue, 85 and 86, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are going to take a harpoon to the Commerce Code Authority, particularly with one of those instances I just mentioned. One of the very specific things I just mentioned in terms of if um, no comics shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. I would say shooting up heroin on the cover and showing a tray with all the fixings for heroin on the cover definitely counts as that. But we're not here to talk about those issues just yet. So, didn't want to spend too much time on that, but there we go. That's the information contained relevant to the Comics Code Authority. And here is the final part of the episode. And I'm keeping it the final part because I don't know if some of you like this or some of you don't. So, 
As I said before, I will be going through the uh, the issues and reading the letters page from each of the from from each of the comics, so that you can get a feel for the real time responses uh, to the series. So, from Green Lantern's mail shoot in this issue, dear editor, after three months of waiting, after being convinced that Green Lantern Green Arrow was being dropped. The new number 82 issue finally appeared. After all the worry caused by the ominous words ending issue 81, quote, thus the journey is done, the three great characters were back and still handled by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. This meant, in itself, a great yarn from start to finish. This precludes judging, weighing the fine points of the story as good or bad or strong or inconsistent. O'Neill plus Adams plus Lantern plus Arrow plus Pretty Bird equal great comic and much enjoyment. The point is that the story is not essential to my enjoyment of the mag. I somewhat preferred the cross-country trek to the fantastic voyage, but it didn't matter at all that much. What I buy the magazine for is to see how Arrow and Canary are doing with each other, and to hear some more great GA wit, to see Canary grow prettier and prettier each issue, and to find out who Arrow is going to beat this issue, and to see what Lantern and all of us is finding out about good and evil. What I buy the magazine for is Green Arrow. Arrow is just the best all-around comics character I have ever seen. His wit, his nerve, the fierceness of his individuality are incredible. And so is his glibness. He, a pillar of individuality, a wellspring of strength, and Black Canary, strong, beautiful, yet basically helpless without someone to guide her, are perfect for each other, 100% male and 100% female. I find myself wishing all good things for them. As for the Lantern, he's okay, and I admire his constant courage, but the strength of the magazine is Green Arrow. So what if the magazine is officially named Green Lantern? If Arrow ever leaves, 90% of the magazine will go with him. All of these characters, plus the dazzling skill of Neil Adams, and of course the brains behind the whole setup, Denny O'Neill, combine to make, without a doubt, the best comic magazine on the market. Every issue extends further the limits of what can be done with comics, and every issue makes me more and more anxious for the next. Keep up the great work. Edward Broderick, Arlington Heights, Illinois. Comment from the editor, Julie Schwartz. Score round one for us. Easily one on points. We're happy. Round two quickly starts off with a slap and builds. We're slap happy. Freaking Julie Schwartz. <laughs> Dear editor, you blew it. The first four issues of GL that the O'Neill Adams team presented us with possessed earthy, meaty dialogue, characters, and situations. There was a compulsive reality about the whole fabric. You had to put your teeth into it and pull on the tendons a little. And it was always there, tough and substantial. Then, in issue 80, after only three issues of America tramping, Green Arrow decides he's had enough, since they've cro they'd crossed the country twice. When? I wasn't along, and if I wasn't along, then they may as well not have done it. So Mr. O'Neill proceeds in the next two issues to remove our heroes from the fantastically credible context of easy writing it about this land and sends them planet hopping. Then he discards the really beautiful concept of an earthbound guardian and pretty much ruins the whole sequence he began in 76. Numbers 80 and 81 were almost swifty in satires on America, 
and from a substance viewpoint, they belonged in the catenation. But the style and setting were so radically changed that the continuity was un that the continuity was annihilated. What did we really see of America? Some Indians with a land dispute, some oppressed miners, and a Charles Manson takeoff. That's it? It seems to me that the quest of it seems to me that the quest for America should have been the raison d'etre of the magazine for at least a couple of years, especially in view of what happened instead. The sequence went from down-to-earthness to satirical science fiction and now to fantasy. Quote, how do you fight a nightmare, unquote, was eminently unworthy of the team that gave us no evil shall escape my sight. Quote, I lived this long without learning that bad doesn't have to be a bug-eyed monster or a mad scientist, unquote. And immediately after having said that, Hal Jordan went out and crusaded to stop some ghetto blacks from being kicked un out into the streets. In issue 82, GL is back to tangling with such relevant menaces as Sinestro, and such hidden social injustices as the Harpies and Amazons. If women's lib was your subject, then you rather maligned it by suggesting that women who wish to be liberated have to be bloodthirsty Amazons or mythological hags. I suggest you go back to reread GL number 76, look at its rainbow dawn promises, and ask yourselves if they've been fulfilled. If your answer is the same as mine, well then you're right on, you're on the right boom tube. And there's nothing we have a right to more, and it's, and there's nothing we have a right to be more hopeful about than the fulfillment of promises by people who've already proved their potential to fulfill them. Juan Cole, Sterling, Virginia. Comment from the editor, lack of space forces us to ring the bell down on this abbreviated match with our arms upraised in victory, supported on high by the pat that follows, so typical of the majority received from Julie Schwartz. Dear Editor, Green Lantern 82 was absolutely fantastic. Frankly, I was becoming a bit bored with the Search for America thing. I like the idea and everything but we all need a change of pace now and then. I really go for fantasy and things, and seeing Harpies and Amazons and Medusa was really a delight. Barrymore, San Jose, California. And that's it. So, <laughs> I don't really agree with uh, the first writer, uh, Edward Broderick, who's talking about how uh, Black Canary is sort of ineffectual. <laughs> Uh, as a hundred percent male and a hundred percent female, <laughs> that that uh, that one sentence, uh, Black Canary, strong, beautiful, yet basically helpless without someone to guide her, a hundred percent male and a hundred percent female. That's um, I wouldn't be surprised if that generated a bit of content from other people. Um, as for the negative review from Juan. I think you might be onto something in a way. Um, the social relevance of the series is unparalleled. You, you, you can't you can't talk about Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and not talk about the social relevance uh, in the context of the times because it's a very important part of what it was and why it was created in the first place. So his point is well founded. I think it went after a little hard, um, but it might have been the right kind of poke in the back of the head that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams uh, needed. Uh, when I interviewed Denny O'Neill, 
he mentioned that there was one issue that he wished he didn't do, uh, or that he would have tackled differently. And being the idiot that I was, and just completely enraptured in the fact that I was talking to Denny O'Neill in the first place, I didn't ask the follow-up, which was, what issue was that? I am inclined to believe that it was the issue with the Harpies. Um, because it was such a departure from the content we had got before. Um, there may have been another issue uh, that he could have been talking about, and obviously we'll get to that later on in the series, but of the stuff we've covered so far, I think that could have been it. And it maybe it could have been for nothing other than the fact that it was just a departure from their personal stated mission with this series. So, while that message seems pretty harsh, I don't find much fault in it. Which I find very interesting. So, it was nice to see some Julie Schwartz snarkiness uh, <laughs> in there. Um, but that's going to do it for this uh, episode. A short one, short and sweet, um, hopefully, <laughs> and once it's all edited down and you guys enjoy it. Um, next episode of Lantern Cast presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Next episode, guys. Coming in this year, 2017 will cover Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 85, Snowbirds Don't Fly, as well as issue number 86, which continues that story. It will be one of the biggest episodes of the year for the Lantern cast, and one of the biggest episodes of the Lantern cast ever. Not necessarily in terms of anticipated downloads, not necessarily in terms of just fevered uh, reposting to try and get people to listen to it. Not in terms of just co-hosts. I am going to do everything I can on that episode to be as informative and as discussion-heavy as I can be. I will not tell you who uh, the individuals I will have on that show uh, episode will be. But there will be other people, and as we all know, just based on this one episode alone, Chad is much better at speaking with other people than he is rambling by himself. Uh, it's part of the reason it takes so long for me to do these episodes is because I have nobody to bounce off of and keep me in check, and I feel like I'm talking to myself and not producing a quality content show. But the entire reason I wanted to do this series, this spinoff, is largely because of Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 85 and 86. It is one of the single most important comic books in comics publishing history. Not just in the Green Lantern series, not just in the works of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, not just in the publication history of DC Comics, but one of the single most important comics ever published by any publisher since the creation of the medium. And because I feel that way, the episode in which we cover that content needs to justify that. That content, 85 and 86, changed the industry. And I have been trying my level best to make you understand what the comics code was and the restrictions that it placed on creators. Keep in mind, 
the restrictions I've been talking about up until now in terms of reading the Comics Code Authority have been with regard to the content published within only Green Lantern Green Arrow. I haven't been telling you about the other comics published at the time and what their content was like. But you can see some of the stranglehold that uh, and the limitations that the Comics Code would have put on uh, creators and, uh, and content at the time. So I highly recommend you do one of two things. Go back and read some of the stories. Uh, anything you have available. Could be Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, I don't care. Go back and read any of the content from the popular titles of the time. From between about 1954 and 1967. Read that content and tell me that's not some of the most non-challenging content you've ever read. And if you don't do that, do me a favor and Google the Comics Code Authority and pull up its website where you can see the original text of the 1954 Comics Code Authority and read it in its entirety. I will post the link on the uh, uh, show notes on our website for this episode so that you can easily get to it because I believe it's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund website that uh, has that content there. But I don't know how else I could have prepared you for what's coming down the line, but you are in for a massive lantern cast episode with the next episode of green lantern or lantern cast presents green lantern green arrow and i don't know how else i can say that and um i aim to make that a promise that i can 110 percent deliver on so without further ado if you want to contact us lanterncast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail by dialing 708 lantern Keep in mind there's a three-minute limit on those, so just uh, leave that content there. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter. Um, we're under LanternCast, and you can find us by using hashtag GLCast. Um, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, so if you listen to us on either or both, please leave us a review, um, some constructive information so that we can uh, keep improving the show and leave us a positive review uh we look forward to hearing from you guys next episode of lantern cast will be out next week uh or the week after not sure uh and um oh yeah in addition to this uh the, the upcoming issue of uh or the upcoming episode of lantern cast presents green lantern green arrow we will also be doing episode 300 this year of the lantern cast so keep an eye out uh, an ear out for the regular episodes of the lantern cast as we do have a contest going on uh, for that episode and uh, have asked for some of your feedback uh, about the show and about the comics you're reading gen currently with Green Lantern and just kind of really anything. So be sure to keep in touch with us and, and listen to upcoming episodes of the LanternCast. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>
Take a good look at it before we go back. 